Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, welcome to OMD Daily. Today is May 26, 2020. And what am I going to be talking about today? What have I learned today? Well, I'll, the big learning today has been about Atlassian. Uh, it, so it'll be more about company learning today specifically. I went through the 2019 uh, annual report as well as the 2019 shareholder letter and kind of went through all that wrote down a bunch of notes and hope to share with you what I've learned about the company kind of kind of also as a way of teaching myself through a checklist and trying to I guess get a clear understanding of the company as a result of it so it's kind of an organic development of knowledge it's something I'm trying to incorporate more of and I'm constantly testing different ways of trying to go through as many different company reports as possible just to kind of widen my own understanding of various business models and also to just kind of go through a first pass uh, of all the various companies just kind of trying to read about as many companies as I can before I decide to go deeper into a particular one I mean it's always much I think much more valuable to have a wider frame of reference before just kind of going into one entire thing it's kind of like what I think Munger and even like Ben Franklin says where to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think that can be the trap when you don't have your knowledge of business models is limited. And I think, yeah, there's at least for me, I think there's so many more models that I should get more familiar with. Um, So yeah, that's kind of something I'm trying to incorporate more of. And so for today's approach, uh, the approach I wanted to incorporate is actually using Phil Fisher's checklist as a way to kind of go through my thought process and try to dissect out anything um, that might be missing from the notes as well as to kind of get more clarity on the various uh, things I pulled out from what I've read. So for those of you who don't know, Phil Fisher is a very famous, uh, I guess you would characterize him as a, as a growth investor. Munger, uh, uh, sorry, I nearly said Charlie Munger. Uh, Warren Buffett has famously said he's 80% Ben Graham and 20% Phil Fisher, Ben Graham being the mentor to Buffett and kind of known as the father of traditional value investing as it was kind of known back then. And Phil Fisher is more of the kind of investor that a lot of the compounding or the... The layman's term is compounder bros, but um, it's practically the investor that a lot of growth investors like to kind of emulate, people who like to buy businesses that compound that can reinvest their capital over time. And I'd say personally, I've always gravitated more towards Phil Fisher and Charlie Munger, and I find them relatively similar uh, in their investment philosophy. Like I think Phil Fisher's book, Common Stocks on Common Profits, I think is by far my uh, favorite investing book. 
I think I've read it about three times. So it's one of my most most read investing books as well. So I thought it'd be a pretty cool idea to actually use his kind of 15-point checklist as a way to look through the company. So here it goes. We'll see how this kind of turns out, and I'll see if I want to incorporate it in future analysis as well. But it also gives like a nice framework so that I don't ramble on too much and without any structure. So to kind of start off with, I guess the, before I go into the first point, um, if you're not familiar with Atlassian, Atlassian is a company that was founded in Australia, um, although they are incorporated, I think, technically in the United Kingdom. And the, t- the ticker symbol is TEAM, T-E-A-M, and that resonates with the company's mission, which is to unleash the potential of every team. And the company was founded in 2002 in Australia by the two co-founders as well as the co-CEOs, Mike, Mike Cannon-Books and Scott Farakor. I, I believe, sorry, Scott, if I mispronounced your last name. And if you so happen to listen to this podcast. And the company essentially, I think the most simple term is that it's a software business that helps teams pr- specifically more so software developers and IT professionals um, just get shit done, to say it very frankly. Atlassian's kind of two main products are Jira and Confluence. And Jira, in my experience using it, is it's kind of like a project management tool. And Confluence kind of works in tandem with that, where it, you know, it allows, it's for teams that want to use this kind of new agile methodology of, you know, product deployment and when I was in consulting I remember using Jira and Confluence and Confluence is kind of more like a I guess they call it like a content internal team communication content tool where you try to share best practices you try to share your learnings and people can kind of go to it as like a repository like an index of all the kind of various informations like the guides the how-tos and everything that other teammates would make up and then Jira is kind of where you would assign people tickets um, for things to do. And yeah, it's kind of, I guess, the full kind of workflow that you'd go through every day. And so it just becomes a tool that becomes part of what you do every day. Like I, I remember I would spend nearly 60% or 70% of my screen time would be spent on the Atlassian suite. Like I got always just be on Jira looking at the tickets and trying to see what I have to clear uh, on various projects, etc. And so, lo and behold, it's it's a software that is used by all the, I guess, more technical folks, software and IT folks, to go through all the projects that they have to do. And that's kind of the quick background on it. So, the first checklist point is what I would call a point on the reinvestment capability. So does the company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? And so when I read this, I I personally think it's kind of like the reinvestment capability of the company. Like it's also looking at, you know, first, what does the company do? You know, it sells software. How big are the how big is the market that it operates in? Who are the current players? So, what I gathered at least from uh, the readings is, according to management, they believe that 
their market is the Fortune 500,000 and not just the Fortune 500. And I think it plays to how the software can be used by a company with only 10 users to as many as you know, 50,000, 100,000 users. But the size doesn't necessarily impact um, how the software will be actually deployed. And it actually works, I think, to the nature of the business model and the go-to-market strategy, which I, can, I think I'll probably end up touching later on. But in terms of the market itself, Atlassian believes that it can service any kind of company generally. And I think that also is why they call it the Fortune 500,000. I don't particularly know. And it's not really explained, I think. And it wasn't explained in depth, at least from the annual report, why they have that view. But it's kind of more the holistic approach that they kind of want to have every company um, become a client of Atlassian's. Management says there are 800 million knowledge workers in the world, and that's the kind of market that they're viewing it as. Because the way that they the software is adopted happens completely bottom up. Like it starts with a small team, individual members, and then it starts to kind of inseminate itself within the organization. So it spreads bottom up. It's kind of like how if you're fam- if you are familiar with Slack's business model, that's kind of how, kind of how Slack uh, got really big as well, where you had a team adopted, and then everyone else started adopting it as a result of that one team. And that's kind of how Atlassian's uh, go-to-market strategy works. So in terms of the market, they believe that it's kind of the whole global market of any company that has knowledge workers, um, any company that has a team. And they're very they're kind of indiscriminate in their sizing. It's not like they only go after enterprise customers. And I think when I... When I looked at their customers, let's see, as I go to my customer notes. Yeah, so they have customers in 190 different countries. No single customer contributed more than 1% of total revenue. And this is also considering that they have many uh, large Fortune 500 companies as their clients. Two-thirds of the Fortune 500 uh, are currently using Atlassian already. and if we looked at the kind of how much um, money each customer is spending, I believe they have, as of 2019, they had they had 150,000 customers, 150,000 plus customers, and one customer is equivalent to one organization. So even if company A had 10 people using it, they would be counted as one customer. And if company B had 100,000 people using it, it would still be considered one customer. So in essence, it's more so 150,000 companies are using the product. But if we kind of looked at how big uh, the spends were and how that was differentiated, apparently 170 of those customers spend more than half a million dollars a year, and then about 4,000 spend more than $50,000 a year. So there definitely is a huge range of the customer base, and it kind of expands, I think, the total market that it operates in. And it's also somewhat, I think, tricky to definitively say what the total addressable market, the TAM for Atlassian would be, because the the business model continues to, um, I think, evolve, and the product offering continues to evolve as well, because they might have first started with a very simple project management software um, called Jira and Confluence, and those two products are kind of 
are the main, I think, focus at, at these for this current moment for the companies. Um, because I think even now, like 13 years since, or sorry, not 13, 18, 18 years since um, its founding, those two products account for, I believe, about two thirds of total revenue. So they, it seems like they kind of also are the way that people start using the software, um, using the company's products. And Atlassian has another, I think, eight or 10 different software lines that will also work in integration with Jira and Confluence. Like Jira has Jira Service Desk, there's Jira Align, and they're all separate software that kind of work on top of the existing workflow. But it seems like the adoption originally starts with Jira and Confluence generally collectively. I think when a company um, decides to use Atlassian, they end up using both of them kind of as a singular product. At least that's been my experience um, back in consulting. That's how we ended up adopting the product. And at least when I ask with my other uh, friends in the software world, it seems to be the case as well, where they use both Jira and Confluence. Um, but yeah, and so it, on the topic of the total addressable market, it, it doesn't seem that it's very clear cut. Like it's not like there was an existing market of project management software and they said, okay, we're going to target this market. It's kind of very typical of the fast growing tech story where you're trying to develop this whole new different market. And I think the Atlassian suite of tools is somewhat synonymous with the whole movement of DevOps, like de development operations. And I think this was actually even considered a career segment that didn't even exist before. Like I think even people like having titles like Scrum Master or being certified in Agile, like these weren't, I think, common nomenclature in like requirements for any kind of job posting until I'd say more recently where more and more people um, or more and more companies became technology-based companies and so everyone had DevOps requirements because everything that you're building requires developers. Um, and I think as a result of that, the addressable market kind of came more prominently into existence and it continues to grow as every company basically becomes a software company, becomes a technology company, right? Technology really isn't even an industry anymore. It, technology never really was an industry. To call it an industry, I think is quite ludicrous. Like a fork was considered technology back then. Wheeled luggage was considered technology when it was first developed. But before I digress too, too far. So in the area of TAM, I think it's still relatively large. Um, Atlassian does compete with all the big dogs like Microsoft, IBM, Google, Salesforce, Zendesk, PagerDuty, GitHub, which is also owned by Microsoft. Um, GitLab is also another big one. Like it competes with all these various large entities, like the biggest guys being Microsoft and Google um, in this kind of whole project management, uh, team enhancement tool. Although I think something to take note is that it's not at least from what management says, um, apparently in most cases, there is kind of a flexibility and breadth of the product itself for Atlassian that their products tend to coexist alongside many of their competitors' products. Um, so it seems like it's not a kind of a, a one and done kind of deal. It's other organizations will use multiple and I think that's quite possible. Um, because it can address specifically different needs and yeah, but it it definitely I think is a competitive market. Um, it probably is also 
competitive because, like I said, it is probably a fast-growing market. Um, the time itself isn't very clear because many companies that currently don't have DevOps will probably transition over. Newly formed companies will have DevOps. And so, yeah, as the economy grows, the market can just only continues to expand. And the other factor is that the products that Atlassian themselves have evolved, right? I'd said they still have Jira and Confluence as the main, but Jira and Confluence, I think, when they when the com- company first started, it was really focused on um, having a more of an on-premise component for the software. And they've continuously been investing in moving everything to the cloud and having a more of a cloud-based um, product. And I think as they do that, that can change how the total addressable market forms as well, because they're already seeing their existing customers who are on the on-premise software move over to the actual cloud-based product itself. So they're already seeing internal migration from existing customers, new customers. I think 90% of new customers will sign up directly onto the cloud products instead of the on-premise products. So um, the difference between the on-premise and cloud products Mainly, it's also kind of shown in how they recognize revenue. The on-premise products tend to be kind of more perpetual uh, licenses that you just pay upfront once. It's kind of like the old Microsoft that you know of. You know, you buy the software, you can use it until it, you know, no longer is applicable, or you just choose not to. Compared to what is Microsoft 360 now, which is a cloud-based, and you pay a subscription price, which is what Atlassian is trying to migrate. I think most of the customers onto because the unit economics associated with it um, result in a higher uh, profitability for the company long-term. I think the the graph they show um, in the annual report shows that in year, in year one, the revenue is higher for the legacy model, the server-based on-premise model compared to the cloud model because there is obviously the higher upfront payment with the perpetual license that you just kind of pay upfront. Um, but there's also a maintenance factor that continuously goes on. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's like how elevators have constant maintenance. So these servers need to constantly be updated. So there is that continuous um, recurring component of the, of the product. But I think as time goes on, um, by I think year five, you're supposed to see much greater sales generation um, for the cloud component than with the on-premise component. I don't know how I got detracted all the way there, but yeah, so still on the first checklist item, um, does the company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? Yes, I believe so. Um, Even despite how the sales have been pretty rapidly increasing over the past few years. I think in 2019 sales, excuse me, uh, consolidated total sales went up 37%. Um, the year before that it was 40% and I forget what it was like the year before. I think the year before was somewhere between 40 and 50%. So it's, you know, it's a high growth company by all measures. Um, and but for the next several years, do I think they can continuously grow? I, I believe so. I think um, although sales has declined from 40% to you know a high 30%, which is still pretty impressive, we're seeing, I think, a change in the mix of the revenue type where uh, I believe, 
what percent was it? Um, I'm gonna have to look at the split difference. Um, so revenue is shown in four separate parts for Atlantean. They have there is the subscription revenue, there's maintenance revenue, there's license revenue, and then there's other. Subscription is kind of dominated by the cloud uh, product itself, and maintenance is the maintenance work kind of a, the 12 month support period with upgrades, updates on the perpetual license products. And then the license revenue is the perpetual license that they sell. Um, so you recognize the revenue immediately when you sell it, but there's no recurring component to that at all. And then other represents various kind of um, fees from training, like you do training to people so that they can learn the Atlassian product and but I think the greatest focus there is Atlassian Marketplace, which I think is a very unique opportunity. It's it's like what it says, it's a marketplace and you can buy third-party apps at the marketplace so and they can be integrated as add-ons to your existing Atlassian products. It's kind the way I equate it is it seems kind of like a WordPress plugin. Um where WordPress has their own marketplace and everyone, there's various develop, third-party developers that will develop these third-party plugins that work on WordPress's uh, web development platform. And I think that's some that's the kind of a, a similar example to what Atlassian Marketplace would be. But yeah, so if, if I were to look at kind of the segmentization I believe subscription revenue tends to be about 52% of total revenue. Um, maintenance revenue was about 33%. And I think licensing is definitely smaller. Um, somewhere like I think in the mid-teens or so. And then other is the remainder. But the big thing is I believe the year-over-year growth rate um, between the mixes the cloud business, the subscription revenue has been growing much significantly. Um, the maintenance and the perpetual license revenue has been declining in growth rates. And I think that makes sense given how Atlassian is very focused on migrating existing maintenance customers onto the cloud because they believe that the, long, the lifetime value of customers in the cloud is much greater over time. And so I think when you're seeing the subscription revenue grow by 50, like mid 50% annually, um, or at least so when I look at the quarterly rates, every quarter has been growing 50, 55%, but even on an annual basis, the subscription size has been growing at greater than 50% uh, year over year. So I think that also presents a pretty interesting opportunity there where I do see, um, the growth rate is continuing to kind of persist, at least for the near term. I believe the market still exists. I don't think um, the market is established in any way with um, very clear dominant players. I think everyone is still kind of playing. Um, I think that it is kind of a rational ecosystem where everyone is still competing but it's not like something that's set up in place where it's obvious who the winners are. Because I think the various players also target different parts of the whole workflow process. And like I said before, they can work in tandem. But it's also something I don't have a clear picture on either. And management hasn't been very um, helpful in providing that as well. They've kind of listed out all the competitors, kind of given signs of 
who their customers are, but other than that, it's hard to discern how the competitive position of, of Atlassian is at the moment, at least. But I think I can just kind of say that their penetration has happened, at least in the larger companies, the enterprise level companies. Um, okay, now I'll go to the second <laughs> checklist. Wow, it's already 24 minutes and I'm only in the second checklist. So I'll, I will try to hustle it up. So the second checklist item, does the management have a determination to continue to develop products or processes that will still further increase total sales potential when the growth potentials of currently attractive product lines have largely largely been exploited? So I think this is like when it talks about management determination, I'm thinking growth alignment with management as well as kind of the long term long term hunger. Um, like, you know, cause some management's kind of checked out after building a company to a certain level and they're kind of no longer involved. They take on the quote unquote executive chairman title, but they don't really do anything and they just kind of live off the dividends. By that time, you kind of get turned off. Um, so what do I think? Um, well, I think management is definitely very hungry. They, you know, the target market that they spoke about, the Fortune 500,000, um, if we think about that, they haven't even achieved a third of that target market since they have just above 150,000 uh, customers. So if we think about that, they still have a long way to go. So you could say that their job isn't done yet. And if we want to individualize it, they believe there's 800 million knowledge workers out there and they want to um, service as many of them as possible. So that's a big number. That's a huge number to target. So they are definitely ambitious. Um, I think the collective age of the co-CEOs, not the collective, but the age of the co-CEOs are both 39. So they are young and they're still in, I think, the prime of their career. So they have a long journey to go. They both, the history is that um, they started at Lazian and I think while in university or just right after university. And both of them have never worked a full-time job before. And so this has just been their life. And the way they ran the company, I think uh, it was bootstrapped for quite a long period. I think for the first, I want to say 10 years. Um, I remember watching a couple of interviews. Uh, so I'm kind of cheating because it's not all information based out of Daniel report. But I remember learning how the company was cash flow positive from the first year. And they've always been cash flow positive. And even when they got venture investors, it was never really because they needed the capital because they could always reinvest all their cash flows back into the business. So they've always, they always had an element of cost discipline um, to not really require too much financing. They rather took on Excel as a venture partner because they wanted someone that can help them build out the company further um, to kind of achieve their own personal mission. So I think there is a form of um, long-term hunger that is existent. Uh, management continuously, when you read their letters, you read the end report, um, they continuously refer to the long-term vision that they always have. Um, even in the company value, uh, values, they continuously stress how they're doing everything for the long-term orientation. I think in the 2019 letter, um, they kind of walk you through how they planned this whole transition to cloud and building the cloud products. And it all started, I think, I think the earliest investment was made in 2005. So that's three years into the history of the company. And they've been slowly, I think, rolling everything out. And then 
like I was seeing the development from 2005, 2010, 2015 to now. And that's a long-term process to build something up, to continuously invest in R&D. And that actually leads me to the other point where R&D is considered to be um, by far the most valuable part of the company um, throughout the annual report letters, um, management's continuously stressed how that is the big differentiator. That's where their moat is generated from. Um, the company will continue to reinvest in R&D. I think about 40, historically, um, 47, 48% um, continuously on an annual basis of revenue has been invested into R&D and more than 50% of all employees are part of the R&D department. So that is the priority area. And management has said that investing in R&D is the priority in, as, in regards to um, internal investment goes. And so, yeah, I'd say that the company is continuously focused on reinvesting. And this actually ties into, I guess this is a good way to bring up their go-to-market strategy. The, their go-to-market strategy is interesting because they are the, I want to say the only enterprise software company that doesn't have a dedicated sales force. The way that people um, adopt the software is completely organic. They come to the site, like, or they learned about Atlassian some way, and then they come to the site on Atlassian, and the sale is literally made on the website. There is no salesperson that walks you through anything. There's no discount. All the pricing is the same for everyone. Um, everything is a very transparent, fluid process, which also means that the company doesn't have to spend any money, really, on an expensive sales force. Everything happens organically, so all that money is reinvested into R&D, and management is very proud of the fact that they probably they invest far more into R&D than any other peers do and that becomes a competitive advantage and that I think will create a flywheel effect in the future and it also I think is a reason why culture is extremely important where Atlassian was featured in um, Dan Coyle's uh, culture code book where he kind of I think goes through how Atlassian creates a culture of innovation they have these hackathons as an example where they continuously try to get their employees to create more products, challenge the existing products that they use inside Atlassian itself um, to continuously figure out new ways that they can add value to their customers and also to create new products to add on to to the existing platform itself. So yeah, I think growth alignment exists. Um, There definitely is long-term hunger, like management's passion. um, It's very evident. They've been very... I think focus and purposeful in how they design their company. Um, they are also very cost disciplined. I think like, I think Scott, the co-CEO, he said he in a recent interview he said now he splurges on writing Uber X, um, but yeah, like the other co-CEO Mike, um, people apparently still make fun of him because he rides the bus to work, <laughs> or he bikes to work. So these guys are very, uh, I think kind of down-to-earth CEOs, to say the least. Um, you know, they don't wear suits. They built that last, you know, also as a result of the desire to not wear suits and not wanting to have to go into an office job as well. So I think that's definitely part of the company's mission um, and their culture, per se. And I think, is this a good moment to talk about incentives? Um, I guess we're kind of talking about alignment at, in this point, so I think, in regards to alignment, um, the two co-CEOs own. Um, they have ninety percent voting control of the company, and they're all through these um, B-class shares. But I think 
if the B class shares, if they were to convert to class A shares, they would go to at a one and one, a one to one. So I think if you were to convert all the B class shares over them, I think two CEOs combined would have more than 40% uh, ownership in like share ownership in the company. So I think from that point, point of view, I do believe that management incentive, it are truly aligned. Um, the co-CEOs don't earn any bonuses. They Their salary in, was $300,000 um, up till 2019, but going forward, they've opted to only receive 75,000, which I think is completely reasonable. I think even $300,000 would have been fine. Um, just given that they don't take any bonuses, they have control of the company, they are the biggest equity shareholders. I thought that was pretty fine. And I do believe that management incentive is quite aligned in that perspective. Um, yeah, let's see. Okay, third point. How effective are the company's research and development efforts in relation to its size? Uh, so one can say that the Atlassian's ability to continue to grow and um, attract new customers is a testament to their R&D efforts because they don't have a sales team. So everything they've achieved at this point is their R&D efforts. So from 2002 all the way to 2020 and over the last 18 years to become the company is now with more than 150,000 customers with two thirds of Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, I would say their R&D efforts have kind of paid off to some degree. Um, the way I look at it is if I were to cap, so they don't capitalize R&D, but if I capitalized R&D, um, the way I approached calculating return on invested capital was actually to kind of use the basic, you know, return on capital employed equation. You have the receivables, the, the components of uh, current asset that isn't cash, um, you include net PP&E, and then you take out the payables, um, the, you know, the current, the current non-interest portion of current liabilities and then you come out to this kind of I guess you call it the tangible capitals and capital employed uh, number but then what I did is I capitalized R&D on top of it so how I thought about capitalizing R&D was about 80% of the R&D spend is attributed to compensation for employees and a good chunk are in uh, stock-based compensation, which vests over four-year period. So what I did is I actually capitalized four years worth of R&D spend um, as kind of a proxy for, okay, well, you're incentivizing your people to in, through this stock um, payment, this stock-based compensation, and it vests over four years. So you are incentivizing people to stay for four years. So then they'll probably th think about doing projects over a four-year period. And... If that's the case, then I felt capitalizing the development of that R&D and the investment of it over the four-year period would be a good proxy. So I did that and include that as part of the um, capital employed equation as part of the denominator. I also included sales and marketing as part of it. Although I said they don't have a sales team, they do um, have a marketing function where a lot of it is to actually educate potential customers, existing customers through all these kinds of various community events like Atlassian. In in some ways, it's kind of, there's like a cultness to it. Like they have Atlassian Summit, they have all these community events run by loyal fans. And so you continuously have this flywheel of um, organic customer acquisition where you literally have people who are customers run these summits 
run these uh, community events to convince other people to become customers. And the the existing customers become even more educated in the software so that they become e- they have even further buy-in into the product itself. Like, what, what, what better way to do that? Um, but yeah, that's part of kind of the marketing budget. I think on average about 50% of the total marketing is spent on employees. So once again, I capitalized the costs related to the human capital function, added that to the capital employed. And so when you look at that, um, the return on capital employed came out to, but um, the two-year average was 65%, 65-66%. And that is on a free, um, an owner's earnings number that I calculated that made adjustments for taking out, um, or sorry, adding back to the free cash flow number, the amount that the company actually reinvests into R&D and sales and marketing through human capital because I put the, all that as part of the denominator and decided to add it back on top um, in the numerator function. So when I look at that, I believe that the return on capital employed is actually quite high and I think their R&D efforts are quite successful um, in terms of the growth of the company. Their organic revenue growth has also been extremely high in that front as well. And so moving on to checklist item number four, does the company have an above average sales organization? Yes, it's their customers. It's all organic. There is no paid sales force. And yeah, no better sales force than the referral method. I think that's awesome. You either go, I think, the end to end. You either go for, for complete organic growth or you have a super dedicated sales team that builds trust over long periods of time and then you have that relationship that just cannot be broken. Checklist number five. Does the company have a worthwhile profit margin? I believe it does. Um, the growth margin, God, I'm blanking here. Uh, let me quickly check. What is the gross margin? I just remember it was, I think it's like 80% plus. Yeah, it's it's in the low 80% is the gross margin for the company. Um, the profit margin, well, it doesn't make any profits. It's up, it's been at net losses. Um, for a while, I don't even know if it has operating income, but I looked at I look at everything from ca- free cash flow basis. In the annual report, I believe management refers to how the company has a thirty five percent free cash flow uh, margin. But when I calculate through my way, um, if I was to look at owner's earnings, where I assume I take out all the reinvestment, so I take out all the money paid for R and D and sales and marketing to further grow the business so just kind of the bones of the company if I think about that kind that as the owner earnings I get a margin of about 60% so they have gross margins of about 80% and then you know another 20% is paid off um, for GNA and just running all the cloud infrastructure and yeah so that kind of profit margin, yeah, it's pretty awesome. So it's pretty solid. Um, what was it? Checklist item number one, two, three, four, five, six. What is the company doing to maintain or improve profit margins? Um, I think this is probably about the moat of the company. Um, 
what is the mode of the business well once again i don't think it's one singular i think it's a mix of the culture i think it's a mix of the switching cost component um I believe they do have pricing power to some degree. Um, there also is a cost discipline associated. So let me kind of touch upon each one. So the, I think I'll start off with the switching cost. I think it's similar to um, kind of ERPs, where once you implement something and it becomes a crucial component of your workflow, um, it becomes hard to take out. And uh, you know, on-premise was always harder to take out because of hard, uh, more customization and it's just not easily deployed. It takes a long time to deploy things um, compared to the cloud-based software. But the thing with the Atlassian products, especially Jira and Confluence, is that the more you use it, the, the more it gets ingrained as part of just your workflow. Um, if you talk to anyone that uses them inside a large tech-based, uh, technology-based company, it will disrupt your operations significantly because everyone is accustomed to a certain kind of um, organizational flow. And it also includes a lot of your data and it includes a lot of how you're supposed to go about doing every project, go about doing executing every task. There are all these rules and procedures that are incorporated within and they are continuously built upon over time. So it's one of those things where once it gets integrated, it gets really hard to pull out. And it's not that big of an expense, once again. The pain of t pulling it out probably uh, is much higher um, than any s small benefit you'd get from canceling the subscription. Like only 170 of the 150,000 customers pay more than half a million. So I think by the by, from an operational level, it may actually be considered quite an essential form of software, I think, um, for the organization. So I believe switching costs definitely is a bit of a mode. I think the other, I believe management actually said that they have pricing power as well, or they reflected how that they have been slowly raising um, prices over time. Yeah, so they have been reducing volume discount for higher user tier customers. Um, and so I think it would be awesome though if they did share something about user retention. Um, I haven't gotten any idea of what the retention is. So having that number would have helped in getting an idea of yeah whether they have pricing power or not. They have said that they've continuously increased prices when they've had to. Um, so there are some hints on that. Are they, would, they, would I ever consider them to be the lowest cost producer in their respective market? Hmm. In one ways, yes, because they don't have the added costs of a, a huge sales team. So I say that could actually become a huge factor that allows them to um, divert a lot of the funds to R&D. So I don't know if that makes them a, lowest, a low cost producer for this software. That actually would probably require me to look into maybe even comparing compensation between various companies. But yeah, I'd say, I personally think um, the switching cost and the kind of ecosystem that they've created would probably be the strongest forms of a moat. Um, and that is, I think, 
continuously compounded by the ability to reinvest into R&D. Um, oh, there's a component. Let's see. I made a note here. So management has said that they view pricing as a competitive advantage. Um, they believe that they are a high value, low price leader. Yeah, I guess that is true because their pricing tends to be quite transparent. Um, and I think their product isn't that expensive compared to traditional enterprise software. So there could be an advantage to that. I'm not too sure. Um, I can't really comment on any further. Next check, next checklist item, does the company have outstanding labor and personal relations? I believe they do. I think the culture, um, the reason I got interested in the company was because it was known to have very, a very um, outstanding culture. I think their Glassdoor reviews are extremely positive. Um, I think I looked at it before. I'm going to look at it right now. Lazian Gla Glassdoor. Let's see, let's go to reviews. Yeah, so they have 4.3 out of 5 with 540 reviews, which is pretty pretty good, I think. I, I think anything above 4 stars, um, I think is worthy of noting. It's kind of one of those things where a negative might not really tell anything, but when you see a positive, um, that kind of signals something. So I think... The most highest level that signals something quite interesting but i think even when you listen to the interviews by um, scott and mike you can definitely tell that they invest heavily into culture um, mike is personally very invested into the culture side of the business like that's where he focuses a lot of his time on and they do refer to people as their greatest assets um, in their reports Although I, I do wish that they shared more details on the actual organization itself. I think that's something I'll have to find um, in like, other alternative data, other interviews, whatnot, to get a better understanding of. Like They don't really share much, I'd say, in the annual report. But I would say that they definitely do invest heavily into their people. Um, if their stock-based compensation is of any evidence to that, I think 20% of their revenue is based uh, is in stock-based composition. So it's dedicated to stock-based stock composition. So yeah, I think they do focus on constantly um, rewarding their people and trying to um, incentivize in some ways like long-term behavior at least four years out. Does the company have outstanding executive relations? Is the compensation reasonable? Yeah, I think compensation was reasonable, as I said. I don't think the co-CEOs are um, overdoing anything. I think... The, they, because this is a 20F, not a 10K, there isn't a proxy statement attached to it. Um, right? It doesn't go too in-depth into how compensation is done, which I find rather upsetting. Um, I might have missed it. I don't think I did. But I couldn't find any information on how compensation is actually measured. And I can't really talk more about that. I do know that the directors, the board of directors all receive like a, a $50,000 annual salary to be on the board and then $200,000 for in long-term stock options. So I think they all invest over four years. The entire executive team collectively earned $4 million in 2019. So you take out 600 collective from Scott and Mike. So then that's $3.4 million for the rest of the executive team of, I think it was another, uh, there's the president, the CFO, the CPO, the chief of legal, CTO. So it seems quite reasonable. Um, I think the split, like you're expecting all these people to make something like half a million. 
I think. Um, so I think overall that amount seems quite reasonable. Management has a huge ownership. I think the entire executive team and directors combined have a 1.4% ownership of the Class A shares that are out in the market, not the Class B shares. But I think the president also owns a small component of the Class B shares as well, which further aligns his, uh, aligns his incentive to us as shareholders. Does the company have depth to its management? Um, that I don't know too much on. I think when I looked at the higher-ups, um, so other than the co-CEOs, um, the president, who I would say is kind of the next in charge, started... So the president joined in 2008, so that's six years since found the founding of the company. So the president's been there for about 12 years, which is pretty solid. The CFO joined recently in 2018, and then the chief people officer joined in 2016. So, mm, not the best. I'd say not the most deep bench, per se. Um, yeah, that's how I think about it. Not much uh, information on retention and turnover. So I really wish that they'd share more about that as well. Um, I don't really get much of a sense of how autonomy works in the organization, how much power and ownership low-level management have. Um, so that part's kind of to be determined, which is unfortunate. I really wish they shared more about that. How good are the company's cost analysis and accounting controls? Um, I think they are relatively cost disciplined. Um, I think the most striking part is how they have no sales organization and how they think about just the go-to strategy of the company where they chose to become a company that goes against grain to traditional enterprise software and actually has an organic form of sales generation. So I think that cut talks to a form of a cost component. In terms of how management shares how cost is analyzed, I think they do a decent job. The, sh the fact that they have quarterly shareholder letters is awesome. I haven't read all the quarters. I only read the 2019 um, Q4 one. But I think having that indicates management stewardship, their ability to communicate the fact that they care about shareholders to enough of a degree. So I'd say that's a positive. Um, but if I compare it to some other companies like Constellation or Trupanion who are much more detailed in how they think about um, various operations of the company, I think they definitely have um, improvements to make for sure. Like if you think about even Roper technologies, like how they think about return on capital, it's very detailed and they educate their shareholders extremely well. So I, I would hope that um, Atlassian can continue to communicate and improve the communication further. This What is this checklist item 10? Are there other aspects of the business somewhat peculiar to the industry involved which will give the investor important clues as to how outstanding the company may be in relation to its competition? Um, I think what's peculiar is the fact that they have no sales, sales team. I think that's the biggest thing, really. It's that's a huge challenge to the status quo. And I think traditional enterprise software did rely heavily on a huge sales team. Um, you, I think Salesforce is one example where I know that at least the people I meet in Toronto, most people that I know 
who work at Salesforce are in the sales team and they have a huge sales team. And I think that is relatively um, true for, you know, when I think about ERP companies like Oracle, SAP, they have huge sales teams that they have huge um, partners with all the big four. Like that's how I'm familiar with the ERP companies, whereas Atlassian doesn't have that. Um, they have solutions partners throughout the world, but the function of the solution partner is mainly to help facilitate this, um, I think this transaction in areas where the language becomes a obstacle. Um, that's at least what the management has said. But a traditional kind of you know enterprise software sales team doesn't exist, and I think that is a huge um, peculiarity. And I think that can actually become the long-term advantage for the business. Um, because who likes to be sold to? Like engineers hate being sold to. And the main customer of Atlassian are engineers. So I think they understand their target market extremely well from that perspective. And I think that becomes an advantage going forward. And I think traditionally people thought that was a huge uh, important factor to the industry of enterprise software to have a very effective sales team to continuously generate fast growth. But Atlassian is able to do that by going in about a different way, going bottom-up, um, educating existing customers, actually targeting people that are very loyal. And I think that has a much deeper effect. Does the company have a short-range or long-range outlook in regard to its profits? I believe long-range. Um, cliche, because tech, you know, fast-growing tech company that is losing money, you know, Amazon's made it kind of very acceptable for that to happen, but I think it's still, even even if that's the case, I think it's still hard to do that. Um, but Atlassian has continued to approach their, at least finances from that pererspective although they've continuously been cash flow positive. And I think that's something the co-CEOs constantly stress is that they have negative net income, but they have always been cash flow positive. So they definitely are mindful of, I think, short-term shocks, and they're very cost-conscious, but they continuously emphasize on the long-term investment, like the cloud transition product, uh, cloud product transition has been, you know, been in the works for more than a decade. So I think that's definitely an example of their long-term mindset. Although the fact that they give quarterly guidance is odd. Um, maybe it's because they write quarterly shareholder reports, so they feel like they have to give quarterly guidance, but for me, that could indicate still a focus a bit on the short term, um, which I'm not too big of a fan of. I'd rather they just didn't do any of that at all. But I'd say net, they are long-term oriented. In the foreseeable future, will the growth of the company require sufficient equity financing so that a, the larger number of shares than outstanding will largely cancel the existing shareholder benefit from this anticipated growth? No, I don't think they need equity financing. Um, they generate a ton of cash. They are net. Ca they're in a net cash position. All their acquisitions have been, um, not all, but the recent two huge acquisitions with um, that resulted in creating Jira Agile, and uh, they had an acquisition in twenty eighteen for what was the company. Ops Genie, yeah, 2018 was Ops Genie, 2019 was Agile Craft, both were predominantly nearly all cash deals. So they don't, you know, seem to have a trigger happiness for equity. 
they just use it, I think, primarily as an incentive tool for compensation, which I'm relatively fine with. Um, if that's how you want to incentivize your people, I think that can actually be a great way to ha- align your employees for the long term. So yeah, I don't think they have any issues with financing um, over dilution. I don't think so either. This management talk freely to investors about its affairs when things are going well, but climb up when tra- troubles and disappointments occur. Hmm, I think I need to read more shareholder letters for that. But they did um, open up to the fact that um, their product HipChat was failing and they ended up selling it to Slack and they formed a partnership for that. And so I think that is one indication of showing humility where you know which products are not working and you find a solution to still come out of it relatively unscathed, um, not to have too big of a loss on it. And it resulted in a, you know, a partnership with a very, I think, prominent um, enterprise software company that they could compete with, but instead of competing with them, or they, they were actually competitors, they ended up partnering with them by selling a component of the product that wasn't working. So I think that kind of ownership of, you know, the fact that, yeah, this didn't work, but this is how we solved it um, is one indication of that. But, yeah, on management's candidness, I got to say they're pretty candid on their interviews, but in terms of admitting to mistakes, I don't know. I'm sure they've made plenty of mistakes, but maybe nothing big enough to really share. Can't really comment much on it. Finally, does a company have a management of unquestionable integrity? Once again, um, I believe they do. I personally think that the way that they live their lives, um, just the down-to-earthness of what they do, how honest they are with everything, um, even the story of how they got Excel to become their venture capital investor, how they were extremely clear with exactly what they wanted. Apparently, when they were um, getting VCs, um, pitching to VCs, they had this data room where they had all the information available to everyone publicly and any question that they received from other VCs, they made it public to all the other VCs as well. And people didn't like that, but that's what they did. And they believed in making it a very fair and fast and efficient process. Um, so I, I do believe that management has pretty high integrity um, just from those kinds of stories. But yeah, that's something to continue to watch. And I think this is a company that I will continue to follow. And I do want to dig a little deeper into the... Um, culture and management side of because it's just because i find it very fascinating like even the co-ceo structure is fascinating it's unique it's different and they're constantly i think rethinking about they're always approaching problems from the first principles level i believe um in terms of valuation i'd be remiss not to talk about it so i briefly talked about how i look at company um, valuation, how I look to calculate return on invested capital. So if I look at return on tangible capital employed, I get something like a 65, 66% return, um, with, but that's without management capital allocation capability. So if I add goodwill and intangible assets back in to represent how management deploys cash, I get a much lower capital allocation of 45 or Actually, if I average it out, it looks something like a 43%, which is still pretty solid, uh, 43% return. And, you know, for a company that has a cloud-based cloud business that's growing at 50% annually, consolidated revenue is growing at 30% plus. Um, when I look at enterprise value, 
uh, and I try to calculate a owner's earnings yield, I get uh, like a two percent yield, like high high one one point eight one point nine percent, low two percent yield. So it's you know from that perspective, it can be pretty. Some could say it's expensive, could be considered frothy, but in other ways, it's a very fast-growing business. It's a highly profitable company, um, and a lot of the growth could be baked into it, but in some ways, if the company continues to grow at 30%, which is possible, um, Yeah. Okay. So if we thought about, it, let's say, I'm I'm gonna try to do a quick idea here. So let's say they went from 150 to 450. Um, so they tripled in the number of customers they had. Um, I mean, if you grew at 30 percent, like even even at a double, even 30 percent annually. Um, you get 300 customers in 300,000 customers in something like two and a half years and then that's just a customer but uh, something they don't share is how revenue is grown per customer that would be interesting how they can spread internally through all the different teams that would be something fascinating to look at the life cycle of one customer how that revenue um, can actually increase but Im I imagine that's how Atlassian will continuously be able to grow revenue going forward. Like, even if they hit, you know, f let's say four fifty thousand of the five hundred thousand, Fortune five hundred thousand that they target as their customer base, they're continuously building up more products to be used in that ecosystem, and they're con creating this, you know, product platform that can also integrate with all these third-party apps that exist on their own marketplace. So, I think there definitely are various areas that are just not very obvious um, that you could be getting for free on top as well that might not be baked into what the market views as yeah like that's not baked into markets assumption of all those growth targets but I, don't know, I, I personally think it could be a pretty fair valuation even at a 2% yield for this kind of business um, but yeah I'm probably going to look into it further and get a better idea of it over time. But I hope this was helpful. I hope this was interesting. Um, I think I'll try to do a better job of condensing the information and trying to be more succinct about it. Um, but I think this 15 checklist approach might be pretty interesting doing so going forward. So yeah, I hope to incorporate more of it in the future. Thanks for listening in and take care. I will see you tomorrow.